Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I am your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in studio again, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, how are you? Terrific, thanks. Thanks, Steve. It's another beautiful fall day, late fall uh, at this point, but uh, no snow on the ground yet in Cedar City. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. So you and I have been talking about innovative practices in higher education, and we are going to um, get out on the fringe a little bit, Uh, although I suspect in lots of parts of education, this is not a very fringy topic, but it it may be for us. And the the fringe I'm talking about is uh, you and I just recently attended an event where our, uh, our lieutenant governor, Spencer Cox, said, as we prepare these students, as we educate them, we need to bear in mind that we are educating them for an entirely new workplace, a workplace that will include artificial intelligence, and it it, it will be hardly recognizable to those of us that are perhaps even doing the educating. And that really struck me, that that particular part of his talk. Yeah, and he... He added a conversation he had with someone. He did. Who said, when I left college, this is a person who's retirement age or retired, I can't remember how, uh, but this individual said to the lieutenant governor, when I left college, I had training sufficient for the next 30 years. But now when people graduate, they don't have training sufficient for the next and I don't remember what he said, yeah. but like 30 days. Right. <laughs> a very small, a very small amount of time. Yeah. And so anyway, that, that stuck in my mind and, and, uh, it, as things do with me, it swirled around until I thought, Hey, we ought to, we ought to start talking about this in higher ed and the ramifications of, um, game design and learning and, and artificial intelligence and all the other things that, that seem to be driving a lot of the innovation that's going on in the world economy. And so we have a special guest joining us by phone today, and why don't you take a minute to introduce him? So we're delighted to have Dusty Hansen join us today from, I think, your home in Ephraim, right? That's correct. Welcome, Dusty. Dusty is a game designer, author, and illustrator, and you've spent your career... um, on these three topics, these three areas. They're all related, but all not related. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, your main claim to fame, we'll get to all of the secondary claims to fame, but your main claim to fame is that you graduated from Southern Utah University. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> At least yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we would like to think that. That is true. I'm a Thunderbird, a T-Bird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've spent um, you've spent your life in some very interesting jobs, and 
And um, particularly in the world of game design, um, some interesting experiences. And and uh, as we get started here, let's begin with you giving us a little bit of an introduction. So why don't you tell us just a little uh, brief um, rundown of your career, life career. Sure. Um, I've always been an artist. That's, I mean, where it started with me. And art was kind of my version of play to the detriment of a lot of my educational career, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I was the guy who doodled a lot. Um, and I went to school, uh, when I finished SU in 1993, I jumped into the video game world, kind of not really even knowing what it was going to be. So at a pretty early time when things are pretty rudimentary, and I've, I've worked with everybody from Sony, Nintendo, Microsoft, but the majority of my time is with Electronic Arts. Um, where I've got to kind of grow up in the industry, I, I had really good timing because when I started, things were pretty basic. And now, I mean, it's unbelievably complex. And for somebody who loves to continue to learn and goof around, which are two things I love, um, video games has been a perfect career for me. Um, and then I went from video games to working in the toy industry for Hasbro for quite a while. Um, it's another place that... We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that, where we talked about kind of game theory and game design, maybe a little bit, and how play is such an important part of that was really what drew me to Hasbro and had my mind completely opened about kind of the potential of play and child development. It was really, really fascinating to me. And that kind of led me to writing books. So, yeah, I'll do a little bit of everything. <laughs> you, have a, you have a child that um, brought your attention to video games as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's it. You know, I started off in the art side of video games um, and I got more and more interested in watching how play was becoming such an important part of my son's development um, that it kind of had, I, it started me on this path of kind of digging more into what the difference between kind of game design is and game theory, kind of like a deeper level understanding of why we play and kind of what play does for us. And I saw that first in my, my son, and it really, really piqued my career into some very interesting and different questions in different areas. What's the difference between game design and... And game, game theory? theory? Yeah. Um, I think game theory is a little bit more extracted version of, of game design. So um, game theory is kind of the question of why do games work and how do games work, uh, or why games work, and why we like to play, and why, what are addiction loops, and how do those things work? And kind of what are we doing from a development standpoint that makes games compelling to us? Um, and game design is a little bit more structured. It's, it's more of actually what happens in a game. To be like super pedantic with it, it's I push A and it does B. Um, and so game theory is a little bit more on the why and game design is a little bit more on the how. How, how have you seen... Um... When you were working with uh, EA and then with Hasbro and some of these other places, you've you've seen how this um, world has had an impact on learning, including your son and uh, some of the projects that you worked with in EA. Could you talk to us a little bit about what's going on yeah. in learning? Yeah, I definitely can. I, I know exactly when I first started to notice it. And it's when I was working at EA, I was working on a project everyone's heard of called Madden um, and a massive team. 
you know, 100 plus people working. You've, you've heard of the video game horror hours. Yeah, we were doing those hours, like 100 plus hours a week. It's, I mean, it was one of those, like, can you uh, get in as early as you can and stay late long enough till you feel safe driving home? Those were the hours, you know? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, kind of like artist hours. Um, That's right. Um, yeah, and, and I was watching this happen, and I was seeing our productivity just drop. Um, you know, we weren't doing anything great, and, you know, we, we do bug reports. You know, you, you play through the game, and we'd get – you know, 2,000 things found by the testing group overnight that were wrong in the game. And it's, you know, it just feels overwhelming. And, and I saw this point where we were just absolutely, we were losing the battle. There's no other way to put it. Didn't think the game was going to be possible to ship. And I was in a kind of a creative management role, which is always a fascinating place to be because a lot of the things you do um, should, of course, be backed up by fundamentals and through study. And But a lot of it ends up being kind of gut reaction. And my gut reaction is, from watching my son and going through his development things is that it was impossible for us to continue to be creative unless we'd found time to play. Um, and let me tell you, when you go in and you're working on a multi multi million dollar project, that's responsible for a half a billion dollars in revenue. And you go to your boss and say, uh, we're taking Saturday and Sunday off period. No questions asked. I don't care if we don't ship the project. We need time to play. And if that means families or the group gets together, it doesn't matter to me. We have to break. We have to cut these things out. And they supported it. You know, it was risky and argumentative, of course, <laughs> but they supported it. And over the next, and it was almost immediate. Part of that, of course, is going to tell people and say, hey, guys, no more Saturdays, no more Sundays. And everyone's excited, right? You know, of course, that's a great thing. But the bigger part of it is when we saw the long-term effects of people going home and, and digging into their own passions and taking that creativity that was generated through that, bringing it into the product was fascinating. Um, and it became something that became an absolute tenet of how we approach creative development. Because even if you're, if you're an engineer, if you're, you know, hitting like the actual numbers of, of human physical body dynamics, when a player gets tackled by another player and how does that impact their, you know, inverse kinematics, like all this stuff that I don't have any idea. Like, I don't understand that from, from the soup. Um, but when we had somebody come back and say, you won't believe what we did. We went bridge jumping this weekend. And what I realized is that the human body does this and he rambles on about these crazy things of what, you know, how the human body moves from actually going and doing it is so much better than theory. So it, it finds its way into that learning and project process. Um, and that's where it started for me was kind of that, that eye-opening moment of, of doing that. And that actually kind of, it moved me into a different role at EA, um, not because of, you know, like, oh my gosh, Dustin's so great and smart at this. It was more, this is my passion. It's something I have to find out more about. And I was lucky enough to work for a place that was supportive of that um, endeavor. And they put me into a role where I got to play, which is like, who gets that job, right? <laughs> Yeah. where I was encouraged to find out if this meant something. Um, and for me, that meant a lot of reading and a lot of, you know, talking to people who are way smarter than I'll ever be kind of about what do we know about child development and, and how do we know that it was Bruner in like the seventies came up with a statement similar to primary function of play for children when they're very young in that, that long, and why do we have this long period of immaturity as, as humans, much longer than any other mammal? And the thought is that 
or his hypothesis was, is that it's the support development of flexibility of thought, which is humans have that and other animals don't. Um, so that whole pattern, believe it or not, made its way into my theory of game design and how I can say, how long do we let people play versus how long do we challenge them? Um, so that's kind of, I know I kind of rambled there a little bit, but. No, this is really that, interesting. Kind of, yeah. Well, and, and, um, and some of the products that you've got are educational products. Yeah, for sure. EA didn't tamper too much into that. Um, but I have in, you know, my life more, more recently. Um, and certainly when I, when I moved over to Hasbro, it became way more kind of focused on that development, educational development, which, which I found really interesting and definitely working on younger people than you're used to working with. Um, <laughs> um, but I think some of those things continue. Um, one thing that I, that I've really noticed, um, when I look at kind of the way we do, we do education now, and, and I, was doing some adjunct stuff here at Snow College and I got to work with college age kids and it, it was so different to me than what I had expected because it was so formalized. Um, it wasn't a good fit if I'm being really honest because my approach to education kind of follows my approach to game theory, which is you have to let people experiment. You have to let somebody fail. Um, and, and I was in a, a teaching, an art teaching position. And one of the hardest things for any artist, and, and I'm sure Steve will fit with this too because it's very it crosses over to music very well is artists are told to find their voice what's the unique thing that you can do to find your voice and it just absolutely stifles people it, it stops them in their tracks so my theory to that is the only way to find your voice is to fail at trying to be somebody else right. so if you're a singer and you need to go sing like john mayer for a couple of years to figure out that that's not you during that failure experimentation play process, you'll develop that voice of who really you are. That's right. Um, and, yeah. and right like not, Beethoven. Not all systems. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's right like Beethoven to find out that maybe you can, you but are maybe totally you can do not something Beethoven. different. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and that really kind of followed into that, that, that principle to me. And, I, and I, I've seen it happening more and more where, where that kind of play is encouraged. But I do think almost like on a society norm, we stifle that play stuff. You know, quite often we look at somebody who continues to be playful in their career and in their daily life. Somebody who is experimental in their play style, how they dress, you know, what they do, if they want to be an artist or a dancer or a YouTuber for crying out loud, why would you want to do that? You know, or to be a podcaster, <laughs> how dare you do something so playful? And quite often the adults in the room want to tell those people to grow up. But what they're really saying is, why haven't you stopped playing yet? You know, and and I really do find that to be a real common thread. Um, and and it, like I said, when I see people playing video games, a lot of times it, it makes me kind of ask those same types of questions of, you know, why did they return? You know, are they here trying to try to find more engagement in their daily life? And if they are, what kind of play style can we inhibit in them that will give them more engagement in their daily life? That's a really a big, massive question that I'd love to answer somehow, someday. <laughs> Well, in a lot of ways, um, we're using um, games in our educational world. Um, I can think of three quick examples. One, we have a pretty nice flight program here, and, yes, and we to do. save money and time and gas and, and gas and safety, 
students will spend a lot of time in a simulator practicing how to fly, and that's basically a game, isn't it? Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a game. It's just a game that's saving time, saving money, safer, getting a lot of practice. Yeah, saving life. And um, I I understand that there are schools now that are using um, gaming for um, teaching anatomy. So instead of Mm. dissecting an actual, you know, doing an autopsy on an actual body, they're doing it virtually. In the VR, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to my son a while ago and had an interesting chat with him about this. Um, And he said that when he was in college, that he took a geology test and he said he didn't actually really have to study much for it because... He used to play the Magic School Bus game, video game, and he no did the, he did the whatever it was called, but it's the one about geology. Right. I remember the books. Yep. But he <laughs> played that game, and he said he remembered all of the things that were in the game. Yep. And so when he went to take the test. No kidding. And the reason he remembered them is because it's it was interactive. It, it was interactive, and it was set to music, and I mean, there's all those things to engage all those parts of your mind and eyes and ears and yeah that's that's a great way to learn uh, yeah. yeah no i i totally agree and uh, i think the safe environment thing is the one of the most interesting parts of that whole that whole thing i know a lot of people talk about when when they see people playing like really aggressive competitive games you know like the type of games you'd see in an esports arena you know overwatch or or you know, Call of Duty, stuff like that. Um, people who are from the outside of that might underestimate the important, like, real, honest, true life skills you can build through that type of gameplay. Definitely, conflict, conflict resolution is a really tough thing for young teens, especially boys, right? Kind of learning how to deal with that by the, between the ages of, I don't know, 12 and 17. I know that was brutal for me. Conflict, um, conflict uh, resolution? Yeah, conflict how, resolution. How about between 12 and 70? Yeah. Oh, no, you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, of course. One, um, of, the, one of the biggest difficulties that managers have is um, having crucial conversations with employees. They, they're timid. They don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or create an uncomfortable feeling in the office. And so they tend to avoid it until it's gone so bad. Too late. That, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and games not only simulate that, Often they simulate at an extremely high pace, um, you know, where both, both verbally, you know, people, you know, you've heard of people who are salty online who play, you know, say terrible things to each other online. They've never met each other. There's, you know, dealing with that is one thing. And it, it's a really interesting thing to see how people react to that type of verbal play back and forth. Um, but also if you're playing like team-based games, like a game like Overwatch, where everybody has to fit their own role. And if you don't, you're not pulling your weight, it becomes very easy to tell. I mean, there's statistics that are, are really fascinating. And the analytics that we can pull at the end of the game, even, even as gamers, and say, well, I did pull my weight. Like, I have actual data that shows I pulled my weight. Kind of takes a different approach if you've played with the same team over and over again, where you can say, well, I pulled my weight, but if I maybe I'm pulling too hard. Um, maybe I need to do something else to kind of make the, the team more successful. And... Or Gosh, let, or let somebody like, else do more. Um, you know, yeah. Maybe I'm maybe I'm making it I'm doing too so much. that I, yeah, I'm doing too much for somebody yeah. else. 
Yeah, and I've watched kids. I mean, I've done some really fun, interesting play tests with a game called Fortnite, which everybody's heard of. You know, it's massive. Um, and watched kids play through Fortnite, which is a real kind of independent. It's uh, you know, it's almost a solitaire game at some point, but you're competing against other players. And I've I've watched kids play that. We've let them play it for hours and then talk to them about the rules after they've played it. And I'm talking fairly young kids, 10 to 12 year olds. Let them play and just explore and have fun, you know, and enjoy the game. And they and they always absolutely love the game. And then we pull them out and say, now here are some rules. Here are some fundamental things you can do to make the game more successful. And to watch, and, and all of those are usually about cooperation. And, and being aware of other people in your environment and, and trying to figure those out and to, to watch and see their reaction, their eyes just light up about, oh my gosh, I have such a deeper understanding of these things. That, that is such a fast and easy lesson to teach someone because of that experience of playing, the con- playing with it first. Um, it's really, really interesting. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of that stuff creep into software. Um, actually, Steve and I were talking one time <laughs> about when I was in school and, you know, the three of us were in school, you, you weren't supposed to use a calculator to do math. It's like, don't do that. It's cheating. You know, the teachers would <laughs> make sure that you couldn't do that. And now to think of doing that, to, to take a math class where they don't let you use a calculator, that's just crazy. Of course you'd use a calculator. Why wouldn't you use a calculator? <laughs> Right. And in fact, and we should teach you to learn the ca- the how to do the calculator. Yeah, that's what we exactly. should teach you. That's what you have to learn. Yeah. <laughs> but what we've really learned is that, man, computers are way better at math than humans. They're unbelievably good at math, right? So why shouldn't we take advantage of those things? Well, the really interesting thing that's happening now is that we're doing complex and interesting things with machine learning and AI that are having computers that can do fascinating, creative, artistic things. And when we look at what we've done with mathematics, the reason we have computers is because we invented computers, which is a really bizarre thing to think of, right? Because we found something that could do math better than us and faster and can come up with, especially in like statistics and analysis, where they can do millions and millions of computations per second. We could never do that as humans. Well, if we can start to do that on social issues with a computer that can go through millions of social experiments, you know, on a minute and give us some results that are interesting. It can tell us those back to us in a semiotic way where we can understand through gestures and our art and through, you know, different literature. What is that going to do to elevate our potential for learning? It's, it's really incredible and interesting stuff. You know, eventually we will have something that's going to replace the calculator in the classroom if we don't already, if we want to embrace it already. I think that's a great idea. You know, we should be using the internet in the classroom. You know, we should be able to, my, my wife is an elementary school teacher. She shared a photo of me of one of her students going home and sitting at the computer and saying, Alexa, how do you spell had? And Alexa says, you spell had, H-A-D. And her mom was like, I don't know what to do about this. And my wife's response is, let her do it. That's so wonderful that that right. child would be like, you I know how to solve a, a problem. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. great. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Um, I hope we are. That's the kind of question I would ask. How do you spell had? (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Uh, Without a spell checker, I am worthless. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So as speaking as a guy that, that, uh, you know, 
uh, still has his Nintendo 64 and plays Goldeneye and has not really Excellent. made the yeah hasn't really made the leap to <laughs> the later uh, iteration of games. I I am though fascinated by the fact that for older adults, games kind of comes back. Um, there there are lots and lots of data that says, you know what, you actually should probably play solitaire or you should play something uh, to keep your mind agile and active. You should play two dots or you should play something that makes you think about uh, numbers or about spatial reasoning or, um, you know, it, 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 that the way that we would keep our minds active is by reverting to playing. And, um, and, and actually by doing so, we, we forestall the, you know, issues related to, to Alzheimer's and other things that, that, that can come and uh, rob an older person of their, you know, of their quality of life. And, and so it makes me think that the, um, you know, my, (laughs) I had a, a niece that just had a crazy, crazy imagination and I remember her <laughs> saying something to my father and I and we were sitting there and and my dad turned to me and he said you know the shame of this is they're going to beat that out of her by second grade they're going to they're <laughs> going to beat all the you know all the imagination out of her and and it seems to me that that as you've suggested school um, play in school is meant to be done at recess only and and now that we have fewer and fewer of those types of opportunities, that there's less and less play. When in fact, uh, as you've suggested, the science tells us that that in fact play is important to keep our minds flexible and can help us solve problems. And if you fast forward, you know, my wife uh, uh, has taught dance for many years and taught our general ed dance history course, and she had very much the same experience as your teacher friend, where she came home, she said, the first three rows of students are just really into this and I'm really enjoying it. And they're watching the videos and we're talking about it. And the last three rows of kids are looking at their phone and I can't seem to engage them. And I, I said, well, you know, don't take away their phones, have them do something with their phone, give them, you know, have them go find on YouTube this thing. And she said, she came back the next day and said, oh, this, it's one of the best. This is one of the best days we had in class because now all of a sudden, it engaged this little plaything that was in their hand, and they were, they were now they were on a, a scavenger hunt, and they were uh, off trying to find this very obscure piece of Russian ballet that I told them to go try <laughs> to find, and and now all of a sudden we're on teams, and 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 now that third row is that sixth row is enjoying it as much as the third row is, and. Um, it seems to me that that at, since this is a podcast about higher education, one of the things that that we could do is begin to bring all of the things that virtual reality and artificial intelligence and video games bring to us, whether it's um, whether it's the ability to um, have a, a, a an Alexa type assistant that just simply was a twenty four hour tutor that was, you know, uh, artificially intelligent and could answer virtually every question that a student might have when they needed that answer, um, or, 
if it was running a simulation, you and I were talking, you know, running a simulation between Patton and Rommel in North Africa in an American history class and say, okay, you know, um, here are the here are the two teams. These this is the these are the tanks they had. On your mark, get set, go, and let's see what happens. <clears throat> and that, and then let's actually see what Patton did and what Rommel did. Now all of a sudden, you know, you're you're there, and if you're wearing AI, if you're wearing VR stuff, you you're really there. And um and uh, you know, it just it seems like to me it that there's a coming. In the same way that we started off the podcast talking about the coming revolution that this would bring to the workplace, seems like to me there's probably a coming revolution for those that are willing to see it and embrace it, that 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 we could bring all of this technology into the classroom and dramatically improve the impact of our education, of our efforts at educating our students. Does that seem like a fair statement? To me, yeah. I mean, that sounds amazing. You know, I, I, I just think, you know, I mean, we know from a long study, years and years and years, that unstructured breaks from cognitive tasks improve our learning and attention. Like, everybody knows that. And we even kind of fit it into our vernacular. You, know, you need to take a break. You need to chill. Like, we, we say all these things as a way to almost, almost like a restorative thing um, that we say to each other. Um, it, but but they're real. I mean, we can feel those on a very deep level. And, you know, having somebody, instead of saying, you know, hey, put your phone away, which I know that's a tough thing. And, and I know that there aren't always situations where having a phone in the classroom is a great idea. <laughs> but the way that your wife approached it sounds so engaging to me. And you can see how people can understand that. And part of that is that I know as gamers, if I'm speaking strictly from a gamer, one of the things we like to do is we like to be better than everybody else at what we do. And believe it or not, finding something, finding the perfect meme and finding the perfect gift to put on somebody's Twitter response is a game. Um, and allowing students to participate in a language that is familiar to them and not just familiar like, uh, like we tell them what to say, but allowing people to speak in a language that feels comfortable and familiar to them. That's really powerful. Um, there's, there's a book by a guy named Scott McLeod. Good first name, right? It's um, an awesome person. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, called Creating Comics, and it's about creating comic books. And he, but really, what it is about, it's about language and play. Fascinating book. I would anybody in the world that has time to read that book should read it, because we look at at kind of the history of language from hieroglyphics, which were pictorial graphs of emotional things that were happening for ancient people, right? And then we've completely gotten away from that to a point where we look at this really rudimentary, when you think about it, slow input device of reading and typing, right? It's the slowest thing in the world. To type to somebody, I get you, I feel it, it's difficult, is a really tough thing to type, and it comes off cold when it's written on the page. When you can send somebody just the perfect emoji and communicate that at a very deep level, especially if you've had <laughs> previous experience with them, right? So when we're asking people to to really parse and understand language, and, and, and we can't truly speak their language. As, and I'm speaking as a game designer, not as an educator, but I think there's some similarities there. Um, when we're asking them to, to speak in a language that we've defined as a game designer, there's a high, high correlation with failure there. But when we allow them to speak in their own experiences, that, that failure and that learning goes up dramatically. 
you guys are familiar with Minecraft, you know, if, unless you live, unless you really haven't turned on anything since your Nintendo 64, Steve, you've heard of Minecraft. I have heard of Minecraft. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Minecraft is, is absolutely brilliant in a lot of different ways. And part of the reason that it's brilliant is that the developer who made it one single guy, um, I think he was actually single at the time too. Um, he's not now because he did sell Minecraft for three billion dollars. There Microsoft. is a joke to be made right there. there and I'm not there going is. to make it. <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> there is. Um, but this guy, his name is Notch because he has a gamer name because he doesn't want people to talk in his non-gamer name because he understands that's how that works. Took all language out of the game except for two words: the words "mine" and "craft." And those two words tell you everything you need to know about the game. You mine things and you craft things, right? Like the most simple version of rudimentary language possible. But what he did was he gave people tools to communicate at a completely different level. He gave them servers so that they could jump on and they could build massive structures together. He gave them a really simple gameplay that was intimidating and and terrifying, but, but eminently beatable. He just kind of put these tools out in the way and then said, you guys building this game not me i've given you the tools and you go ahead and express what you can do with minecraft and it's become the most played video game ever in the history of all games period across every device everything it's the most played video game in the history of video game development and it is it's really crawling its way into education especially elementary education when we talk about scale and blocks and mathematics it fits perfectly but what it really does great is it teaches us to do really complex things like system shifting and role shifting. Um, You know, when you're playing on a game with somebody and you meet their avatar and you don't really ever see who they are, do you treat them differently than you would if you met them in a classroom? And we get to see these really interesting things. So when we look at a society right now, which has younger kids who are looking at maybe boomers (laughs) like me and saying, why can't you guys figure these things out? I think it's because we work in a different language system. I think we're a little pedantic. And, and and I think that there's a lot of potential. And I think a lot of it's happened because of games. Because we, you know, I talked about what if there was a social system that we could use that would allow us to, to experience social constructs at a, at a very accelerated level, like calculators did for mathematics. Games do that. They've been doing it for 25 years. And people are able to play these games and go through these really, really complex hard, but yet at the same time, soft (laughs) decisions that have to be made at a really cognitive and almost emotional and empathetic, empathetic layer um, at lightning speed. You know, people are making those decisions instantly. There's good and bad to that too, but, but it's interesting. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, they're, they're speaking sometimes a separate language than we're speaking. Um, gamers speak a different language, and and I say that now because you know I'm 50. I don't I I play games with my sons who are young enough to be kind of in that you know they they do great playing on an esports team. Um, they're that age, um, so I still play with them and I stay in tune. But I, it's not my game anymore. You know I've seen how much it's changed. It's really fascinating to me. Um, you say esports teams. Uh, this is slightly off topic, but not completely. Yeah. But um, Southern Utah University is part of the Big Sky Athletic Conference, Division One, And um, the Big Sky Conference is sponsoring an eSports tournament this year. And we have a team. And we have a team. Uh, 
some. Well, and and we're not ahead of the game. I need course. a jersey. We'll get you we, one. We will. We will yeah. get you one. And and we're not ahead of the game here. There's there's a lot of uh, conferences that have uh, been doing this for a long time. But but what uh, what we're learning is is that um, somewhat surprising actually for some people anyway, not for you, but for some people <laughs> it's a surprise to learn that the the students who come to universities to play on an esports team are very prepared for university studies. They are smart. They usually major in STEM degrees. They tend to be more male than female. and um, they Which retain, is actually a big deal for Which us. is kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah because, because they're, male enrollment has been dropping. All uh, across the country. And yeah. it's, it's I six, just read an article about that yesterday. 60-40. Yeah, kind of the best you can hope for at this point. Wow. Yeah, and... Um, these students retain at higher rates and graduate at higher rates. So it's not like they're missing class to play games all day. They're um, very serious students. Yeah. Some schools, um, one in particular told me that they have started a, a game. The, unit, the president of the school said they've started um, a gaming team for the very purpose of um, attracting high-quality students that they know will stick with it and graduate in difficult majors. And that they're having a hard time attracting other students to come and study. It's fascinating that to is. me. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I'm always glad to hear that because, you know, stereotypes are funny because they're true sometimes. Um, <laughs> well, there's, that's that's how they became a stereotype. Yeah, exactly, right? But the stereotypical gamer um, is very different than uh, than a competitive or I, right now the term has been engaged gamer, which is an interesting term. Um, and there, there's a big difference from the, you know the stereotypical guy that, or and I will say guy because that's part of the stereotype, right? Um, yep. You know that lives in his basement, orders pizza on his mom's debit card, you know that kind of thing, right? Plays games for He's awake for only 12 hours a day because he sleeps for 12. But those 12 that he's awake, he's playing games. Right. Um, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days. An online version that, of the comic book guy from the comic book store guy from The Simpsons. That guy. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yes. Like, um, you know, those are those are funny and they're they're attracting because they're they're outliers to what the majority of gamers are. And the majority of gamers are the engaged gamer who will play a game until they've. Yeah, kind of, you know, got what they want out of it is usually what it is. Um, and usually they'll find one that they'll attach to at a very deep level and they'll look for that opportunity for expertise within that, which you put that into any career or any fundamental study. If you can find someone that, that has that pattern, that's going to be a successful pattern. Um, and I know as far as in the workplace, you know, like I said, I'm, right now I'm, I'm doing some work for the, for the government. Um, yeah, the government. The United States government, um, <laughs> and they specifically hire gamers um, for this for this role that I'm doing right now. Um, and can't publicly talk too much about it, but the reason that they do is is because of that. They're looking for people that can. Um, they look. They you know we we hear this one inch wide and a mile deep type of person. Yep. You know they have like their specialty and they can go very deep, and and gamers fit into that category. But the other interesting thing about what they're finding with gamers is that they also fit very well into the one inch deep, one mile wide category. It's a really interesting cross section. 
and and a lot of that comes from what and and this is pure opinion this is not like stuff i've read and studied or anything just stuff that i've personally watched so anecdotal at best um a lot of that comes from people being able to do like high 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 levels of multitasking uh, right like you know if you watch somebody play a, a very aggressive you know shooter game or you know these rts games that real-time strategy games where they're making you know, hundreds of mental calculations you know, in, in literally seconds, you know, they're getting to the point where it's like, wow, man, that's almost computational. They can have a hard time writing AI that can keep up with people. You know, that's, that's a really bizarre skill set because you're having to manage a lot of things on the surface, but at the same time, keep a high end goal. that's very, very deep and very complex. Um, you know, and that's, it's a real good, real life skill that can be moved over into a lot of other areas in, in you know, your life. That sounds like you. So I'm a fan. President. I'm a fan. I, I, I'm, what he just described sounds like you. Oh, I don't a think A million so. tasks all at once while keeping <laughs> a very complicated and high-end goal always in sight. Uh, we wish. might be a gamer. We only, we only wish. <laughs> if only we could wish. Well, it's kind of like... you need to like, sign you up a PlayStation account and get you going on? There we go. <laughs> yeah, we need to talk. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of analogies to this and what you're describing, the, the difference between flying an airplane and flying a helicopter in our aviation program. It, it's mm. kind of like the difference between playing a piano and playing the organ, that um, when you're flying an airplane, you use your two hands. When you're flying a helicopter, you're using your two hands and your two feet, and you're doing them all at the same time. So you're, you're having to um, keep your focus on certain things things very deeply but then on the kind of the routine level you've got to be able to be managing four limbs all at once to control the craft anyway it's interesting (laughs) and in some respects we're all having to do this in our jobs Um, we've got a goal that we're shooting for but we've got a million distractions yes yeah that all need attention to well this has been really fun and interesting um, yeah, for me too. I, Definitely. I can't wait to see what happens. It's um, if you if you go back, I, I just love thinking about um, you know like uh, my mother as an example. We all have these same stories that <laughs> um, she lived in a little house. They had no indoor plumbing. Right. They had a outhouse. Toilet paper was the Sears robot catalog. You bet. They had a um, they had a party line. Yep. When the phone rang, the number of rings indicated which house should pick the phone up. That's right. I remember all of everything you're describing yeah, at my but, grandmother's house. Yeah. They they had um, a horse that pulled a plow. They did have a tractor, um, but it was a pretty simple tractor. And uh, and then you just roll forward decade after decade after decade from the early 1930s and 40s till now. And each decade, the changes were far more than the decade before as we go through this exp- exponential um, advancement in technology. Um, until today, you know, if you're going to go fix your fence... You're not even going to get on the horse and go look at it. You're just going to send a drone out to find which <laughs> poles are down. Mm-hmm. You're going to sit in your house, essentially playing a game yep. 
with the yeah. um, flying your uh, flying your drone around and say, ah, the fence is okay there, and it's okay there, and it's okay there, and here's a problem, so I'll go, I'll go fix that one little problem. Yep. The big question to me from that is how do you become productive in the time that you've saved from those type of activities? That That's that's a global question to me in general, where if we have found ways that we can save time, what, what other endeavors can we conquer that are big, massive social endeavors that this next generation is going to be able to solve that we haven't, it's not that we didn't want to conquer them. And I'm throwing myself into the same category because I'm not that young anymore. It's well, that we didn't have the time. You know, time is a great commodity. It's the ultimate, right? Well, Dustin, let's we go more time. Let's go back to yeah. the start of our conversation about play. So, you, do you, um, Steve or Dustin, you remember the book uh, series, the great books? There was like sixty of them in the series. Oh, yeah. um, these in were, those little blue paperback things, the great book. Sure, I, I still oh, have. Oh yeah, well, I know there, yeah. Ours were hardback. Yeah. Oh, were they? Yeah, hardback I, volume. Yeah. Um, started with I think the first one was Homer. Went all the way yeah. through. The yeah. first volume was called The Conversation. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. and in that book, it talked about one of the things that I'm remembering, and, and I didn't anticipate is heading this direction, or else I might have gone back and looked at it to make sure that I remember <laughs> what I'm saying. But, <laughs> but what I recall reading was that one of the great benefits of the Industrial Revolution was the creation of leisure. Right. And so that now instead of um, spending our time from sunup to sundown and beyond building a shoe um, through all these really difficult little processes, we now can build 100 shoes in less time with the machine. And that means we can go home a little bit earlier and now we have some leisure time. Have dinner with the family. And we can spend that leisure time reading the great books to reading Aristotle and Plato and everybody else. And so hopefully that's part of the answer to your question is that um, the way we become productive with our spare time, part of the answer is... is That's how they sold pianos. We uh, learn. In the the early part of the 20th century. No kidding. Yeah, you have this leisure time and yeah, you could fill it by joining a bowling league or joining the Elks Club or whatever, but but if you really (laughs) want to have a cultured home, (laughs) you're going to have a piano and every kid is going to take piano lessons. And I, I, you know, in there, there probably is a 50 year period in the history of the United States where every kid, whether they liked it or not, whether they enjoyed it in any way, took piano lessons from some local person in their neighborhood. And, and it just was, it was a a rite of passage uh, from, for being a kid that you had, that you had lessons. And that's, largely because we didn't have to be, you know, the kids didn't have to be milking cows. They didn't have to be constantly engaged in farm work or whatever a previous generation probably would have had to do. If we go back to our flight um, story that we're actually using video games to teach flight, um, one of the outcomes of that is is that um, the flight instructors have more the same amount of teaching can occur with less time for the flight instructor because you don't have to sit there and make sure that somebody doesn't crash. 
because you're using the simulator. And if the person, the student crashes, then nobody dies. Right. Um, hopefully, eventually, we'll start seeing uh, in larger scales um, a lot of efficiencies in teaching, learning, grading, assessing, all these kinds of things through AI and some of these other ideas. If you can, if you can do all these computations, Dustin, you're talking about, um, including in the social side, um, I don't know a faculty member that wouldn't be giddy with the idea that all of her testing or his testing could be done through AI. Oh, for sure. Because that's one of the parts that's just not as enjoyable. And well, you want to be a teacher, not a tester, right? Right, and it, and it's and it's <laughs> so routine and right can be mm -hmm. really, really monotonous. Right, all rote. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully, one of the outcomes of all this is going to be um, increased productivity in education, all the way from elementary school on up, and and leisure time for the teacher to improve the the learning experience rather than worrying about the rote part of what they do. And when we say leisure, what we're really talking about is it's not just uh, sitting around with your feet up. Yeah. It's, yeah. No, it's, no, no, of course. Um, it might be, but one of the important parts of my job is just reading. Uh, I have to read a lot of, to do a lot of reading. And so if there's some way that I can find a way to do more reading, I'm much better, much better in my job, more creative, everything else. I'm going to ask yeah. Dustin off uh, off the air to send me his recommendation for a video game that the cabinet could play on our laptops at our next oh cabinet, for sure at our next cabinet meeting. <laughs> I think we need to. <laughs> I think we need to try that. Uh, I think that yeah, would be, I would love would to talk blast, with you about that. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I would love to talk to you about that. I think we could find something perfect. Well, the progress of all this in the last. Uh, Decade, two decade, three decade. I, I, I had a Magnavox. And, um, I did too. <laughs> I still have one because I'm an addicted collector, but. <laughs> yeah, I remember playing, I remember playing Magnavox. Uh, anyway, the progress that's happened in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, I can only imagine what's going to happen in the next 30 or 40. Yep. You probably have a better idea of that than any of us, but our worlds will I be have... different, won't they? Yeah, I'll tell you, I have predictions, but my predictions would pale if compared to talking to probably a 12-year-old who has really put some time into thinking about it. Because um, you know, a lot of the predictions that I have, I'm still doing, mine are pretty reactionary, you know, and, and I've always, I'm always interested in that, that difference between being reactionary and being proactive when it comes to, you know, creative thought and, you know, where that comes from. And, you know, I, I willfully acknowledge that if I was a composer, I'd, I'd listen to a lot of Beethoven, right? Uh, right. You know, I know we stand on the shoulders of others, but sometimes uh, th there are people out there. I was telling, you know, Steve and I talked earlier today also, we, we were talking about, you know, I, I saw this documentary about a kid, 16-year-old kid who had taught his computer um, to, he had, it's just called machine learning. It's a different level of AI that, that these young people, are, well, not just young people, that the engineers are really interested in right now in this one particular young man taught his computer to develop a passion for Kanye West. Now that's a bizarre concept, right? He didn't didn't say, "I want I want you to go and read all Kanye West's lyrics." Um, what I want you to do is to develop a passion for it and to do something with it. That's what he's programming a computer to do. 
that's bizarre to think that we can do that. So the result of that is, is that he's created a, a, a computer, a machine is a better, much better name than computer in this case. A machine that has thought out all the lyrics for all of Kanye West and is now writing Kanye West style lyrics and speaking in Kanye West vernacular and has studied melody patterns and rhythm patterns and is creating Kanye West. That kind of stuff is stuff that I would not even consider. Like, you know, I'm much more concerned with like, I'm being reactive. Like somebody will say like, here's the problem we have. Uh, define the difference between conflict and and action, you know, in a video game. Okay, that's something I can solve. The person is the one that is that, that's saying, I'm going to teach this computer to, to, lo- to love Kanye West. Like, that's the person who's going to change the world. Those are the things that are interesting. Can I get... Um... Can I get that kid to build a machine for me that will um, develop a passion about me sufficient to write responses to all my emails? Oh, yes. Honestly, isn't that going to happen? And to create my PowerPoint presentations and my speeches. PowerPoint bot. That's what we need. Now you're talking. That's what we need. And and, uh, my, I don't, um, I only teach a class once every other year, but. I do a lot of guest lecturing. Could that person create my guest lecture outlines? Exactly. You know what I would love? Honestly, those are great questions. In reality, those are great questions. What would save me an enormous amount of time is is something, you know, similar to the paper clip that used to come up on on Word that would say, hey, it looks like you're (laughs) writing a letter. I would love to have something that came up and said, you know, you've written a document like this. 900 times before uh, <laughs> could we point out to you where you could take a paragraph from this and two lines from this and eight lines from this and get this done in 30 seconds because you've written this over and over and over again just using slightly different language for slightly different purpose and just having something that would just bring up I, I know we have templates and other things but I need it to access everything I've ever written and just say what could save me time here in my right because that's I well, literally type until I can't feel the ends of my fingers every well, day yeah and, and let's um, I mean I don't think this is too different of an analogy you got a president of the United States who doesn't write a single speech doesn't have time right so the president right. has a whole team of speech writers what's their job their job is to try to understand his yep. hopefully one day her um, but understand his manner of speech and his voice right and so they study that and study that and study, and then they start writing speeches. Um, why can't AI do all that for us? Yeah, I'm sure it could. Uh, I guarantee you it will. It will. And I think that's the interesting thing is that we're, we're heading down that path. You know, it, there's all, obviously some, some dangers there too, right? If we, you know, speaking of president, not any president in particular, but one did kind of make the vernacular fake news very big. Right? If we have AI that's already doing that, it is doing it. <laughs> right? How much better is it going to be in two years? Right. About four years? How about 10 years? Are you going to be able to decipher the difference between somebody's speech or something they speak in their speech pattern and something that's written by AI? So there's some inherent dangers in there. There's some things that from a social standpoint, from an educational standpoint, that have to be addressed because the people who are coming up next are going to have some big roles to play in how we regulate and understand what this technology can do. Yes, the ethics of all of that is yeah. going to be a very interesting challenge. But I think we should work on that university pres bot 2020. 
Yeah. But, <laughs> well, <laughs> there's um, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult, and I think that we'll find a day when it's impossible, based on how we're discussing today, that yeah. that a student could cheat on an essay. Oh, yeah, for sure, no question. Yeah. Um, AI would yes. would would catch you, where a faculty member would never be able to catch mm -hmm. catch you. Oh yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, the AI technology could also help you cheat. Help them cheat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get them yeah. started on it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the double edged. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this... big responsibility you guys have. <laughs> I'm just going to keep making games. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um... This has been really fun, and I, I hope we get to talk more about this because um, um, this is the future, and this is what we're working towards, is to be ready, not only to take advantage of the technologies that are out there that can help us um, do a better job of what we're doing in education, but, um, you know, more than that, it's, um, it's just everything about our lives. I totally agree. Dusty, for our listeners, um, where would they find out more about you and what you do? You, you, we, we don't do a lot of commercials on this uh, podcast, but, <laughs> but you've created so much material that people might be interested in knowing more about you. How, how would they find that? Uh, the, probably the best place is just to go. I have a website, Dust Writes. It's like writes books. D-U-S-T-W-R-I-T-E-S dot -E com. That'll have some of my current highlights and things that I'm working on, which means I should probably update this before you put the podcast out. But, you know. <laughs> you have two weeks, my friend. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's usually where I send people to say hi. And, you know, my email's there. I love to talk to, especially, you know, young people who are interested in this you know, reaching out to them has been a passion for me. And, and so, you know, my email is always open to people who want to dig a little deeper into what type of careers there are in games and, and game development. It's a fascinating and never changing industry. And I could, I would be happy to poison the next group of people into thinking it's fun, <laughs> but it really is. It's a really, really great industry. So. <laughs> You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest joining us by phone from his home in Ephraim, Utah, Dustin Hansen, who is a game designer, author, uh, auteur, and uh, master of all creative arts, I think is probably the best way to, to describe Dustin. Uh, we thank you, Dustin, for joining us, and we thank you, our listeners, for following along with us. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.